the Republicans to wake up is... The Republican Party right now is not led by conservatives. There's a population out there that has to be told the truth. Uh, we have to. Do it live! Now, from the left coast, it's another podcast edition of the Peter B. Collins Show. Peter B. is curious, opinionated, and relentless in pursuit of the truth like a honeybee drawn to pollen. He's an independent progressive, ready to sting Republicans and Democrats alike when they deserve it. After years in commercial radio, Peter B. welcomes you to this audio adventure in news and politics with no corporate filter. Listeners support this program, and you can help at PeterBCollins.com. Here's your humble host, Peter B. The Peter B. Collins Show is distributed free on iTunes and at PeterBCollins.com. I want to thank voluntary subscribers like Deborah Newell, David Paulson, Christopher Welsh, and a brand new subscriber, Jason Spitzer of San Jose, California. Our voluntary subscriptions start as low as five bucks a month, or you can just throw in 75 cents. Somebody did that. All the info's at PeterBCollins.com. Later on in this program, we'll be joined by one of the counsel to the Peter B. Collins Show, an esteemed attorney and professor of law from San Diego, and the immediate past president of the National Lawyers Guild, Marjorie Cohn, will be with us to talk about the report that finally came out from the Justice Department's Office of Professional Responsibility saying that John, you and Jay Bybee just used some bad judgment. You know, like mixing red wine with fish. When they put out those memos that became the framework for U.S. torture policy. And it's even more shameful given the recent public admissions by Dick Cheney. Ah, but first, we get an update from Brad Friedman of bradblog.com. On the pimp and the hoe, alleged pimp, alleged hoe, purported pimp, purported hoe, who brought down Acorn. Smiling faces sometimes pretend to be your friend. Smiling faces show no traces of the evil that lurks within. Can you dig it? Smiling faces. Brad Friedman of Bradblog.com has been doing excellent investigative journalism on the alleged journalists, the self-proclaimed journalists, who went undercover with a hidden camera and created these provocative scenes at Acorn offices. And then those videos were selectively edited. And as Brad pointed out to us in our recent conversation with him, in particular the pimp clothes and the hoe clothes were used in what's called a B-roll mode. That is, they were edited in to the actual videos of these scenes in Acorn offices where the two individuals, James O'Keefe and Hannah Giles, were just dressed very differently. Because in the B-roll we saw, uh, 
Uh, O'Keefe was dressed up in an over-the-top pimp outfit, and Hannah Giles' butt was hanging out of a miniskirt. And they used that to great effect. And the corporate media in this country has swallowed it hook, line, and sinker. And Brad has been working very hard to set the record straight and to get the newspaper of record, the New York Times, to correct its own misreporting of these issues. And in doing so, he's gotten under the skin of this guy named Breitbart, who is essentially the guy who's directing all this, Andy Breitbart, who is a right-wing blogger and provocateur. Brad, welcome back to the show. Hey, good to be here, Peter. How are you, sir? I'm fine, and as always, I invite you to correct anything that I may have uh, misstated or improperly shaded in my introduction. <laughs> well, no, you did well there, although to say that uh, the... How was the term that you used, that they were... Um deceptively edited mm-hmm. uh, would be an understatement. Okay. It wasn't just uh, the, the, the pimp character that he put in uh, at, the, at the beginning and the end of this thing. It wasn't just that he went out on Fox News wearing this outfit, that it was used to sell this entire scam. Uh, you know, the, the content itself of the video was unbelievably misrepresented, which you can get a sense of if you read, if you bother to read, if anybody bothers to read, the text transcripts that they, uh, that Breitbart and O'Keefe have released of what actually went on in those uh, Acorn offices. Now, we don't know if it's the, you know, the real transcripts, uh, but there's probably, you know, nothing worse that they left out, but because what those transcripts actually show us is that uh, okay? A, we know he didn't wear his uh, pimp outfit now because we've had uh, some uh, confirmations once again of that over the weekend. Even though I've been, you know, arguing to the New York Times about it for the past two weeks, but uh, Hannah Giles, who played the prostitute, confirmed that O'Keefe never wore the pimp outfit. Uh, crazy Andrew Breitbart uh, confirmed uh, that he never wore the, uh, that O'Keefe never wore the pimp outfit. And, of course, we even caught Andrew Breitbart lying about that in his own uh, column in the Washington Times uh, back in uh, September of 2009 as the story was breaking and as he was selling it on his big government website. And, you know, he said uh, James O'Keefe, wore this, uh, was dressed as a pimp and getting advice from uh, acorn workers and so forth. So they completely misrepresented it because in truth what happened was James O'Keefe was going into these acorn offices not dressed as a pimp, but dressed as a college student, a law student. Occasionally he would say he's uh, uh, you know, considering running for uh, uh, politics someday. Uh, and basically, he was representing himself to these workers as someone who was trying to save Hannah Giles, the prostitute in this case, was trying to save the prostitute from an abusive pimp who was trying to kill her, and he was trying to help get her out from his clutches, uh, from the evil pimp's clutches, and you know, get her uh, and these other young girls into a house. And, you know, as they went through uh, the, 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 the case and what was going on, they were, you know, basically saying, well, how can we get her a house? How can we get her a mortgage for a house? And they told her, well, to get a mortgage, to be eligible for a mortgage, you've got to have a job. You've got to be able to show income. Mm-hmm. And so they advised, and they, you know, and that's when they said, well, you know, she's kind of a prostitute. And they said, look, it's none of our business what she is. 
she must report her income, even if it's ill-gotten gains. Mm -hmm. You know, there's no choice on the tax form for prostitute. So go ahead and use uh, one of them said, you know, uh, performance artist. But they were never, no ACORN employee in any of these offices ever advised them to evade taxes as it has been reported by Breitbart, O'Keefe, Fox News, and the gang. Mm -hmm. uh, none of them, you know, there was no uh, child prostitution ring that ACORN was running as the entire gang has misrepresented this thing. It was a and, very and different we'll, thing. And we'll hear Andy Breitbart sputter about that in a few minutes. Yeah, and, and the fact that Breitbart refuses to release the unedited video so that people can actually see what actually did happen should tell you a lot right there. The fact that he's unwilling to release uh, that video publicly, the unedited video publicly. This thing was a scam from the get-go. It worked. And the fact that New York Times and all of these other uh, media outlets, by the way, and I've listed a whole bunch of them, uh, as has Eric Bollert, who's doing a great job on this as well, over at Media Matters, the fact that they still refuse to correct their multiple misreports on this in the paper of record is absolutely outrageous. Uh, and we, we can talk in a bit about what the response I've gotten from the public editor, Clark Hoyt, whose job it is to sort of adjudicate these matters. Uh, but in case folks are, uh, miss it later, Clark Hoyt's email address is public at nytimes.com. Mm -hmm. And folks need to contact him and say, why won't the paper of record correct the record here? So it, it, it's just an absolutely astounding case because what's happened is right after the New York Times reported this, the Congress of the United States voted to defund ACORN. Yeah. It was found to be unconstitutional, but the president signed it, and uh, they have been fighting for their lives ever since. There's there was there was no investigation. There was no due process. There were no hearings that were held. It was simply on the face of these videos and the right. bad publicity that they generated. Of these highly doctored, heavily overdubbed videos. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it, it, it is, uh, there were, by the way, investigations, but they took place after the vote. But the Judiciary Committee asked Congressional Research Service to investigate. They found no crimes uh, as seen on those uh, ACORN, uh, the edited ACORN tapes. Mm -hmm. uh, former Massachusetts Attorney General Scott Harshberger, Harshberger found no crimes uh, apparent on those videotapes. So, yeah, the entire thing was a scam. The entire thing worked. But what's most maddening about it is that the New York Times enabled it, facilitated it, and is still standing by this right-wing hit job. Yeah, it's amazing. Now, one of the things, Brad, I have to say is that you had described Breitbart as crazy, as uh, a wingnut, and uh, maybe you used the term unhinged, or maybe I just imagined that. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's just colorful language from Brad. And then I saw this video that was shot at CPAC, the Conservative uh, Political Action Conference, and uh, he more than lives up to those adjectives. <laughs> you see? I mean, you, you can almost feel the spittle flying as he goes into these incoherent rants yeah. and tries to connect the, uh, the reverses of ACORN with the recent victories of uh, Scott Brown in Massachusetts and the guy who replaced Gillibrand in New York and one other, I guess, the governor of Virginia. Um, and, and those, of course, you have to really stretch one's imagination to think that ACORN is so powerful 
that it wasn't until these phony videos brought them down that uh, regularity returned to the elections in this country. Yeah, I, it, the guy just absolutely melted down at uh, over the weekend, last weekend at the uh, at CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference. Uh, it, it was incredible because he was there to sort of take a victory lap. He was actually receiving. Uh, hold on to your hats here. The the uh, CPAC Accuracy in Media Award. Ow! <laughs> and uh, yeah, so you know he was there. Uh, James O'Keefe was there, whose uh, uh, pretrial officer allowed him to go. Because remember, O'Keefe was recently arrested trying to uh, 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 tamper with the phones of Democratic Senator U.S. Uh, uh, Senator Mary Landrew down in uh, Louisiana. Right. So he had to get special permission from the court to appear, but he was there, Giles was there, Breitbart was there, supposedly, you know, to take a victory lap, and Breitbart just made a complete and utter asshole out of himself in one video confrontation after another in the hallway. What is wrong with this guy? And then he went before the gathering and made this half-assed apology, where he said, I guess I have to apologize which he opened his speech with this, and, uh, you know, there was dead silence from the crowd. I suspect they didn't know what the hell he was talking about because, of course, you know, his uh, phony uh, websites, biggovernment.com, bigjournalism.com, you know, they haven't reported yet the fact that uh, these tapes have all been discredited. So when he made this apology, I suspect 99% of the people in that uh, crowd at CPAC had no idea what the hell he was telling them. And, and you know, the fact that, uh, as he says, you know, the pimp wasn't really the pimp that we made him out to be. Yeah. Well, let's listen here, because yeah. at bradblog.com, there is a clip of Andrew Breitbart, um, and uh, the picture is really worthwhile. So if you have a chance, <laughs> go to Bradblog and look this story up and uh, check it out for yourself. But we'll play the audio track for you and give you just a taste of uh, his vituperation. Last strain that they have, Acorn was caught red-handed, and all they can do is the politics of personal destruction. No accountability. At the end of the day, three people expose this thing. They don't care about the rotten corpse of the, the great society being exposed. They don't care. They don't care. They don't care about these people. So three times, they don't care, they don't care, they don't care. And the idea that this is the corpse of the great society, um, that's that's quite a stretch. Oh, hey, hey, well, yeah, the, the phrase he usually uses is that the acorn uh, phony uh, pimp uh, tapes are the Abu Ghraib of the great society. Oh, my. Uh, not that he, you know, thinks too highly of himself. Oh, you know, I mean, the, the entire thing is insane. We must underscore here. Uh, Peter, you and I have been talking about it for years, long before, you know, while, while Andrew Breitbart was still uh, making his money from getting, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars from linking to himself on the Drudge Report, where he used to work with Matt Drudge. We've been talking about ACORN, the scam, the, uh, you know, the, the GOP hit job on these guys, which is by and large nothing more than a fa uh, an attempt to take them down because what does uh, Acorn do uh, amongst you know other things uh, helping uh, poor people in the inner cities you know get a house to live in uh, to fight for a, a living wage and those things but most famously for signing up millions of legally 
registered voters to mm-hmm. vote. Yeah. And they tend to vote Democratic, and that's bad news for Republicans. So anything the Republicans can do to destroy ACORN, they will do. And that is plain and simple what this is about. It has nothing to do with the Great Society or any of the other uh, bullshit that our friend... Uh, Crazy Andy is is uh, putting out there, and it's part of the smokescreen, as you yeah. and I have discussed many times, to divert attention from the stolen elections, the yeah. election fraud, not uh, isolated cases of voter fraud, but uh, massive election fraud right. perpetrated largely by Republicans. Here's... Right. And, and I have to add, as long as you mention that, mm-hmm. there is no known case of voter fraud, isolated or otherwise, that has anything to do with Acorn. There's been some voter registration issues that mm-hmm. some of their employees did, and that Acorn themselves turned in and turned in those employees to officials. But there is no, I'm unaware of any known case or any evidence of any actual voter fraud that has ever com- been committed by Acorn or anybody who has been registered by Acorn. Back to Andy. They don't care. It's disgusting. Well, was there Where actual prostitution involved? I don't know. Go find them. Yeah. So was there actual prostitution involved in the, in the, in, the uh, in what you exposed? They posed. They posed as a pimp and a hooker. I don't understand what you're talking about. <laughs> Why do you think that's a point? Why don't you care about Acorn? No, Why don't you, you care you, about Acorn? You've t- you've so why do you care about the nuances? Did you see the tapes? Are you insane? Are, <laughs> are you are you so? <laughs> is your ideology so strong that when Acorn in almost every office except for one, are you so insane that they help them create five one c threes and say for this underage Mike Madden? for this underage prostitution ring where we're going to get these 14-year-old girls. It's called sex slavery. You're supposed to be liberal and care about this shit. But, but, I mean, (laughs) you don't... But they're lies, Andy. It's all just fiction. And so we're supposed to care about the fiction and not about the lies that they use to draw the mainstream media into their fiction. Now, one of the hysterical, were it not so pathetic, things about this is their claim that, oh, you don't care about these poor, this, this child prostitution that's going on. But it's non-existent. Waste. Now, you know, if you go to his site, biggovernment.com or Big Journalism, or if you go to any of the wingnut sites out there, look, uh, you know, do a search for Acorn, you will see hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of articles. And they're all just, uh, can't be so beside themselves that Acorn is running this child prostitution ring, which, of course, they aren't, and it's a complete lie. Then, in that same website, do a search for the word Blackwater. Now, (laughs) I suspect you've probably covered this, Peter, but uh, over the last week uh, and last year, we now have two separate court cases by two separate sets of actual employees of Blackwater who have charged that the company was, in fact, running a real child prostitution ring, running it inside the green zone in, uh, in Baghdad, in Iraq, charging all of this to the taxpayer yeah. uh, to the tune of billions of dollars. Mind you, uh, ACORN receives in federal funding something like $3.5 million a year over the past uh, 15 years. Blackwater has received billions since just 2001 alone. So if you're really concerned about big government waste and big government corruption and big government prostitution going on, child prostitution, where's the outrage when it really is going on 
with Blackwater. These guys haven't said a word about it. They don't give a damn about it, which further underscores what a hoax this is and how it has nothing to do with what Crazy Andy uh, was suggesting there. It has everything to do with a political uh, lie and smear job on Acorn. Care. Well, there's a difference you between actual care. sex slavery and we don't care. imaginary sex slavery. Isn't there? Okay, Acorn, Acorn went into a... a Acorn, Acorn, sorry to bother you, but we actually need to break this oh, up. Oh, now the security Acorn, guy's Acorn, moving them along. Let's move. I won't sure. trip you. I won't trip you. Acorn went into a Jackson Hewitt office with NBC and, and did a fake video. You go around saying, Acorn, why do you pose under false pretenses with NBC to expose something when you're not actually trying to pursue a loan? You're trying to expose Jackson Hewitt as being a, 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 a bad operation. You don't care when salon get people, uh, you know, uh, get a disease. That's what that... <laughs> That's what Dan Savage did. No. Okay, that's enough. And the other thing is I do care when NBC runs that schlock called To Catch a Predator because I think it's bad journalism, bad television, well, and, and uh, you know, entrapment. Well, you know, w- w- what the case is trying to make is that, oh, gosh, this was just undercover journalism. Everybody does it. Well, not everybody does it, but it's true. Some people do do it. Uh, but when they do it and when they present the story of what they discovered while doing this undercover journalism, they don't lie about it. They don't misrepresent it, which is what these phonies did. The thing is completely phony. Now, if there was a question about uh, <coughs> excuse me, an NBC report, for example, uh, you remember uh, Dateline, uh, I think that's NBC, yeah, they... uh, Dateline uh, some years ago, they did these reports on uh, pickup trucks that had rollover problems and the gas tank exploded and all of this. Right. And, in fact, they doctored up those trucks in order to make them roll over. And when they were called on it, they released the videotapes, they you know, were, were transparent about it, and, in fact, they got busted for it. Contrast that to what these guys are doing. There has been one call after another to release the full videotapes. They're indignant about, oh, there needs to be investigations. But they're not bothering to release the videotapes, so, you know, the full unedited versions of the videotapes, so that if there is crimes that are so apparent, why aren't they releasing the videotapes, the unedited tapes? There's a reason for that, I suspect, uh, because I, I suspect if you actually see the tapes, they don't show what it is that these uh, uh, tapes were bastardized in order to show. And by the way, as crazy as Crazy Andy, the Orly Tates of the uh, <laughs> Acorn movement, uh, as crazy as he's going in those videotapes, uh, there are more tapes out there that I suspect will be coming out uh, showing just his absolutely insane behavior uh, at CPAC. And, uh, you know, to think this guy right now is really the hero of the, uh, the right wing movement. Uh, you know, he's, he's, he's the new Ann Coulter, but uh, not with as many balls, I guess. Now, what have. Uh... <laughs> What have you managed to find out about the business arrangement between Breitbart and O'Keefe and Giles? Uh, Not much, because he keeps lying about it, uh, or at least changing his story about it. Originally, on the day that O'Keefe was arrested at the end of January, uh, down there trying to manipulate the phone system of uh, Senator Landrieu, uh, Breitbart had to go on the air with uh, another crazy wingnut, Hugh Hewitt, and told Hewitt that, yeah, he works for me, uh, and uh, I pay him, quote, a fair salary. Well, as of, uh, I think it was a week or so ago, he went, uh, Breitbart went on 
uh, a wingnut internet only show and uh, when he was asked about his relationship to James O'Keefe he said well I he's not technically paid a salary so he was uh, paid a fair salary uh, one week and then the next week he's not technically receiving a salary so you know was Breitbart lying then or lying now Kind of hard to keep up uh, in the case of uh, Andrew Breitbart. But we do know that both the James O'Keefe and Hannah Giles are paid by Andrew Breitbart. All right. And here is uh, a tape that includes some uh, wacky comments from uh, Hannah Giles. And this is available at bradblog.com. We'll listen to the first part of this. It was recorded at the same CPAC conference in Washington. And here we go. I'm on, so on, I'm on like a million cameras. I'm famous. It's like you all love me. I just, this is O'Keefe. What about Hannah? Hannah's a Hello. Great American, Hannah. Anyways, James isn't a racist, and I really would just like you to apologize. Maybe send him an email or something, or send me an email with an apology. Well, James or can... Uh, James can uh, explain why he, you know, goes to meet with African American community organizers dressed like a pimp and does this whole he wasn't bizarre like minstrel show and then he lies about pimp. going in there. Uh, these videos were put together by filmmaker James O'Keefe, who's uh, joining us on the couch. He is dr he's dressed exactly in the same outfit that he wore to these uh, Acorn offices up and down the eastern seaboard. And this is a bizarre uh, fake fur vest or something that he has on. Uh, I guess it's this stereotypical uh, yeah. pimp costume that uh, comes to mind. Yeah. Breitbart claimed he was in there dressed like a pimp when in fact he wasn't. I don't understand this whole little minstrel show he was trying to do. And maybe he can explain that. James is a man. He couldn't have a menstrual cycle. So... I guess Hannah thinks she's funny. She made a joke about jogging and stepping on an acorn, and she doesn't like acorns. And then here, when, uh, and I don't know who this guy is, I misidentified him as O'Keefe. Yeah. That's actually uh, Max Blumenthal Oh, okay. of Salon. He was at the CPAC, and uh, he got that interview with her. And I, I, I don't know if the uh, audio is hard to hear. I know if you see the video, we got it at bradblog.com. Uh, it's, it's subtitled on some of these parts where she, in fact, confirms again that uh, O'Keefe was not dressed as a pimp when he went into those offices. Right, and the line we just heard was that uh, um, Blumenthal called it a minstrel show, and she said, well, he's a man, he couldn't have a menstrual cycle, which I, I guess it was real noisy and she just couldn't hear. I'm not sure that she was joking. I, you know, it may have been her um, opposite marriage uh, people don't have maps moment or, you know, if referring to those those beauty contestants. Uh -huh. uh, I'm not sure she, she actually knew. I, I don't know. Maybe let's give her credit for the moment and say it was just a terrific joke, confusing minstrel show with menstrual cycle. Uh, but I'm not sure. It's That's almost a, as tasteful yeah. as the whole routine. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, and what you hear there in the, in the middle of that tape is uh, Steve Ducey, on Fox News, he's got uh, uh, O'Keefe sitting next to him in that pimp outfit, that 70s black exploitation uh, pimp outfit with yeah. the fur cape and everything else. And he introduces O'Keefe as you know wearing exactly what he was wearing uh, in the Acorn offices up and down the eastern seaboard. And O'Keefe never says a peep to correct him. And in fact, in, in the next breath, he, he says, uh, Ducey asks him, well, so this is your idea what a pimp looks like? And he says, well, yeah, I suppose so. And he talks about the fact that he's uh, 
uh, a skinny white kid, but he likes to uh, put on these outrageous costumes and never corrects uh, what is a complete and utter lie, the same lie that the New York Times fell for and actually quoted that video you just heard is the one that their senior editor first quoted back to, to, to me, actually to a, a Brad Blog reader, uh, when they asked for a correction. They pointed to that video and said, well, James O'Keefe wore the pimp outfit on Fox News and said it was the same outfit that he wore in the Acorn offices, and, quote, we believe him. And that was it. That was the paper of records uh, sourcing for this story. And this is Greg Brock, the senior editor for Standards at the New York Times? Yeah. He's, and, he's been, and he's responsible for all corrections there. He's been at the paper since 1995. And this is what he said. And uh, he, he then when he was pushed on uh, the fact that uh, Scott Harshbarger, the former Massachusetts Attorney General, did an investigation and said that O'Keefe was never dressed uh, in that pimp costume in any of the offices, and he was, you know, quoted that material. Then Greg Brock came back and said, "Well, we have uh, there's there's one 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 in one in a videotape. One of the videotapes, the camera is turned in such a way that you can see part of his costume. And besides that, uh, Acorn employees have told us." have described the costume, is what he said. So that's sort of when I jumped into the thread, and I said, well, where is this video where you can see part of his costume? And who are these Acorn employees who describe the costume? Because I don't know anything about it. Well, at that point, he gave me a song and a dance. Oh, I didn't say the videos were released. Oh, I didn't say we did the reporting with the uh, uh, employees. He would never cite any specifics on any of that material. Seems to me he was pulling it out of his ass, at which time... I cc'd into the email thread Clark Hoyt, who is the New York Times public editor. It's his job. He's sort of, you know, supposed to be independent and an ombudsman mm-hmm. who's supposed to look at these issues and sort of adjudicate them and, you know, recommend whether the paper needs to make a correction or not. Now, Clark Hoyt, back in uh, September of last year, actually chided the New York Times chided the paper because he said they were, uh, b- because they waited, quote, nearly a week to report on the Acorn tapes, that they were just too slow in covering these things. And they actually assigned an editor. Um, to, he, he said that, uh, you know, they, they, had, they didn't have sufficient, quote, tuned inness to issues of importance on Fox News and talk radio. So they actually assigned an editor to pay more attention to Fox News and talk radio. Here we are, six months later, uh, since these tapes came out, I don't know how many weeks since I have shown uh, both Greg Brock, the senior editor of Standards, and Clark Hoyt that beyond a question of a doubt, the New York Times misreported this story over and over again Six months later, they've lost their funding. Uh, you know, they've been hit by Congress and everything else. Still no correction, apology, investigation as to what happened uh, from the New York Times. To make matters worse, Clark Hoyt, and uh, I'll be, uh, hopefully uh, this will be available by the time uh, folks listen to this podcast. I will be running the emails that I received from Clark Hoyt in response to all the people who have been uh, contacting him about this. And again, if you want to contact him still, he's public 
at nytimes.com. And does he send the same response to each individual, or no. does he, he customize them? I think they don't respond to most people. In this case, he was specifically responding to me and said, Brad, I decided uh, to look into the case you brought to our attention. And essentially, there was two major emails from him. If you have time, I can try to run real quickly through what he said, and then I'll point folks over to bradblog.com where I will run the entire thread between myself and Clark Hoyt. Sure, give us a couple of quotes. Uh, real quick, he, uh, he basically, when he wrote to me, so we decided to look into it, and based on the available evidence, no correction is necessary in his opinion. He gave basically three reasons why. One, he, he pointed to the most recent uh, story in the New York Times uh, by a fellow named uh, Rutenberg, uh, who reported that James O'Keefe, this is right after O'Keefe was arrested, James O'Keefe was, uh, he described him as, as the one who dressed as a pimp and uh, used a hidden camera to uh, catch acorn workers off guard concerning prostitution and so forth. So Hoyt said, you notice he said dressed as a pimp and stashed his cameras to uh, get hidden video of acorn workers. He didn't say while doing these things. So he was, in other words, he's saying there's no doubt that at one point James O'Keefe put on a costume and there's no doubt that at one point James O'Keefe used hidden video in the acorn offices. Therefore, no correction is necessary. Must be a different version of English he's using. You got that? Yeah. So he did one and the other, but not at the same time. Okay. Fair enough, I guess, if we give him every benefit of the doubt. The problem is, going back to September, Scott Shane, on September 15th and uh, thereafter, wrote time and again, very specifically, that uh, O'Keefe and uh, Giles were dressed in, uh, what did he call it, outlandish, uh, gaudy garb, uh, that would have been more appropriate in a risque high school play. There was no two ways about it. The Times misreported it. There's no other way to interpret what Scott Shane said in a number of his articles. So I responded as much uh, there. Point number two, he said there is a video. If you look at the uh, Washington, D.C. Uh, acorn video, there's a moment when uh, O'Keefe and Giles are walking out of the office when... <laughs> Uh, you can it, look at, there's a, a reflection in a mirror. You can see a shot of O'Keefe, and he appears to be wearing his pimp costume. And then the camera jostles, and you can see, you have to look quickly, he says, but you can see uh, parts of the costume and parts of the fedora hat. Well, I went to that video. I downloaded that video. I did a frame-by-frame -frame screen grab analysis of that video and shared it with Clark Hoyt, and showed him that, A, the reflection in the window is of a guy in a white uh, button-down shirt, the same type of shirt that we all know that O'Keefe was wearing, mm -hmm. not in a black jacket with a fur cape over it and a black fedora on top of that. Uh, and then frame by frame, what you see is O'Keefe's hand, and then you see his elbow uh, in a white you know, shirt, the same one you see in the window, uh, and then his hand reaching up to turn off the camera. That's it. There is no pimp costume. There is no hat. Furthermore, in that very office, in that videotape, uh, it was taken on July 25th, 2009, according to O'Keefe. Well, 
I looked up the weather in Washington, D.C. on July 25th in 2009. The weather was 90 to 93 degrees that day. Yet the receptionist introduced him uh, to, her, to, the, to the staffers there as a Georgetown uh, uh, law student. Didn't blink an eye, said, you know, he's, he's a student at uh, Georgetown, a law student. So we are to imagine that on a 90 to 93 degree day, this guy goes in with a black jacket and tie and a fur cape over the top of it with a fedora hat and is introduced as a Georgetown Law student and nobody bats an eye that he was wearing this on a 93 degree day, a fur cape. I mean, it, the entire uh, you know scenario is ridiculous. I told this to uh, Clark Hoyt. And the third point, he pointed to uh, someone named uh, uh, Ismini Speliotis. He says that his reporter, Rutenberg, uh, told him that uh, Ismini Speliotis described uh, what the characters, what these two folks were wearing, and she was very disappointed that her employees didn't just throw them out based on what they were wearing alone. I had never heard of Ismini Speliotis. She's not in any of the videotapes. So I checked with Acorn. They gave me her number. I called Ismini Speliotis the next day and in about 30 seconds was able to confirm that, guess what? Ismini Speliotis, who is the executive director of Acorn Housing in New York, was not even in the office that day. Wow. As she told me, the first time she saw these two was where? On videotape. Shared all this with Clark Hoyt, shared the uh, admissions, the confirmations from Breitbart, from uh, uh, Giles, that he was not dressed as a pimp ever in those offices, that it was completely uh, uh, put on. And to this uh, day, unless something changes between the time I talk to you and the time you uh, release this podcast, <laughs> Clark Hoyt at the New York Times still refuses to recommend a, recommend, uh, a correction or retraction from the paper of record. Well, I uh, have some homework for all our listeners, and I'm going to set the pace here. I'll be emailing Clark Hoyt to uh, try to get the truth uh, out of this whole mess, and I hope that listeners will, too, public at NewYorkTimes.com. And, Brad, what else uh, would you like to update us on uh, that people can read in more detail at bradblog.com? I'll give you a real quick uh, item on Sibel Edmonds, but I just want to underscore, you know, none of this is about Andrew Breitbart or O'Keefe or the pimp stuff. This is about our paper of record, our mainstream media, taking what these right-wingers offer them and running it without checking, without any due diligence. It's the same thing that got us into a war that we're still in in Iraq, killed thousands of people when they ran Judith Miller's garbage about Saddam and WMD on the front page. It's the same thing that they used to take down ACORN, and I guarantee you this will happen again and again and again until these guys, until the New York Times and all of the other papers and, and media outlets, including NPR, CNN, until they're all held responsible and they realize that these right-wingers are not sources, they are scammers. And that's why this is so important. And to use an appearance on Fox News Channel as some sort of uh, affirmation or verification uh, just shows how far we have slid down. And there's an article out on the web right now written by a respected journalist, Joe Trento, that a Saudi Arabian prince has bought a stake in uh, Murdoch's News Corp and is now dictating to certain people who appear on the Fox News Channel that they can't be critical of Saudi Arabia. 
So, uh, and, and I can imagine that something like that will go on where there's a puff piece about Saudi Arabia or a, a flat-out lie about Saudi Arabia, and the New York Times will publish it and say, well, it was on Fox. And when the New York Times publish it, publishes it, everybody else publishes it, Congress takes action. That's why this has to stop, and I fear it's only going to get worse, not better, unless the people you know, listening to this podcast get pissed off, get fired up, start uh, sending letters to the editor, start taking action the way these wingnuts do when they feel that they have been uh, wronged by the media. If we're going to sit around and allow them to bully the media into reporting whatever bullshit it is, political bullshit it is that they want them to report, this nation is through. So, yeah, this stuff matters, and uh, whoever's listening to this podcast, yes, it matters. Send a very polite note, uh, but one in no uncertain terms, to public at nytimes.com and ask them to correct the record. Yeah. Now, Brad, many yeah. people know that uh, you and I have long been championing the cause of Sibel Edmonds and uh, trying to lift the gag order, and not only that, get the important allegations that she has made fully aired and investigated. And you've written a piece that uh, is available in Hustler magazine, and if people uh, don't like the pictures there, you can find the article in a lot of places online. Uh, it's been pretty widely circulated. But I appreciate what you've done. Uh, yeah, I've, I've gotten it from three different places. Okay, because it just uh, I, I just actually saw it online. It's the March issue of uh, Hustler I just now uh, saw it, uh, I believe, yesterday. I haven't even had time to update Brad Blog with this yet, but uh, over at LarryFlint.com, the publisher of Hustler. Mm -hmm. uh, it's his non-pornography website, uh, and he does have uh, the article in full. It doesn't have the photographs. Uh, sorry to let your listeners know there are no naked photographs of uh, Sibel Edmonds, but uh, even the ones they used are not on the website but the text of uh, my coverage is brings us up to date, uh, talks about her extraordinary story, and yes, about the uh, corporate mainstream media's utter failure to cover this extraordinary story. And uh, we've even given them the name. It's Turkey Gate. Uh, they love anything, you know, any kind of scandal is appended with Gate ever since Watergate. <laughs> and this is spies and lies and uh, people committing treason. Uh, it's it's a very important set of allegations, and I have great confidence in what Sabelle has put forward, but like anybody else, I want to see it thoroughly investigated, and that starts with the media in this country. It, and they, they for, for whatever reasons, are unwilling to touch it. It used to start with the media, uh, or at least it used to start with the corporate media. Now it starts uh, you know, with folks like you, folks like me, independent folks, uh, because, you know, what she's talking about is corruption, uh, real corruption, not this phony acorn pimp corruption, but of the highest order, going up to the very highest levels of government. We're talking about uh, congressmen and women uh, uh, bribed. We're talking about the, you know, the top-ranking state and defense department officials. We're talking about the sale of uh, nuclear secrets to the, uh, to the black market, to uh, Pakistan, Iran, Libya, potentially even al-Qaeda. This is an extraordinary story uh, by a woman who has, 
you know, uh, she's a former, we should say, a former FBI translator in a high security position, uh, was listening to wiretaps uh, inside the uh, inside the FBI. Mm-hmm. She's, uh, you know, g- taken a lie detector test. She's shared this information securely with folks in Congress, and yet... Senators and inspectors yeah. general have verified the credibility of her, her allegations and her access to the information. Uh, all of this, uh, you know, and there's even a salacious sex escapade in there. Yeah. And you would think that the corporate media would find this of value. Particularly after she was not able to talk about it at all for so many years, because the Bush administration twice slapped uh, the draconian uh, national uh, secrets um, uh, state secrets state gag secret order, uh-huh. yeah, on her, and it wasn't until uh, she was brought forward in a court case last summer, and the Obama administration chose not to invoke uh, uh, state secrets privilege that she was finally able to tell her whole her whole tale, and it's a remarkable tale. And even though you know when she couldn't talk. 60 Minutes ran her story, uh, ran it three different times, I believe. Now that she can talk, 60 Minutes is not interested in the least. It's unbelievable. It certainly is. Well, Brad, thanks for the, uh, the really deep investigative journalism work that you've been doing. And it sets a standard that places like the New York Times should try to live up to. You're very kind. I appreciate that. If uh, New York Times is hiring soon, I'm available for the senior editors for standards job. Read all about it, bradblog.com. Thank you, Brad. Thanks, Peter. And the Peter B. Collins Show continues, sponsored by the Organic Wine Company. Now that you're eating organic, you should be drinking organic. Try the fine earth-friendly wines imported by the Organic Wine Company since 1980. Just click on the link on my homepage at peterbcollins.com. After months and months, by my count, about 18 months of delay, the Justice Department, late on a Friday afternoon, released a report from the OPR, the Office of Professional Responsibility. After what appears to be a lengthy investigation and heavy rewrites of the activities of John Yoo and Jay Bybee, who framed the torture memoranda that were used by the Bush administration, to justify breaking our laws and international treaties. For comment on this, we turn to Professor Marjorie Cohn. She teaches constitutional law in San Diego at the Thomas Jefferson School of Law. She is the immediate past president of the National Lawyers Guild, and uh, she's the author of two books I'll note today, Cowboy Republic, Six Ways the Bush Gang Has Defied the Law, and her newest book, co-authored with Kathleen Gilbert, is Rules of Engagement, the Politics and Honor of Military Dissent, We'll uh, ask her to comment on the new book uh, toward the end of our conversation today. Professor Cohn, thank you for joining me. My pleasure, Peter B. You've been very consistent in going back to your book, Cowboy Republic. I have it open here to uh, the chapter about the torture of prisoners. And uh, you make it very clear that uh, the laws uh, regarding torture are very clear and consistent. Yet they have been tortured yet again in this report that was finally uh, released by the Holder Justice Department. 
And uh, this has been uh, the you know source of a lot of speculation and hope on the part of people who want to see not uh, you know some kind of personal vendetta against you and Bybee, but a return to constitutional rule in our country. And it's very sad that in this revised report they have downgraded the misconduct of you and Bybee to uh, just uh, commentary about uh, well poor judgment. You know, like wearing a plaid jacket and plaid socks at the same time. And it's deeply insulting to me to see the way that uh, the corporate media, and in particular right-wing outlets, have spun this as vindication of John Yu and Jay Bybee and ultimately the policies that were used by Bush, Cheney, and uh, that administration. Uh, before I get to specific questions, what is your first reaction to uh, the release of this report? Well, first of all, I want to say that it, they, the two reports, actually, two contradictory reports were released as a result of a Freedom of Information Act request by the Justice Robert Jackson Steering Committee, which I am part of, the group of lawyers, journalists, and advocates um, formed to pursue prosecution of top Bush officials for war crimes in office. Um, there are two reports. First of all, the Office of Professional Responsibility, the OPR report, um, which found that J.U. committed intentional professional misconduct. Uh, he violated his duty to exercise independent legal judgment and render thorough, objective, and candid legal advice. And it, the OPR report also said that you put his desire to accommodate the client, and that is George Bush, above his obligation to provide thorough, objective, and candid legal advice, and he committed intentional professional misconduct. The OPR report also found that Jay Bybee, who's a federal judge, committed professional misconduct, acting in reckless disregard of his duty to exercise independent legal judgment. Now, David Bradbury, who is a senior official in the Department of Justice, watered down the conclusions or rejected the conclusions of the OPR. And both the OPR report and the David Margolis report were included in the documents released on Friday. So Margolis, as you said, downgraded the professional misconduct conclusion to merely poor judgment, which will not likely have the same effects in terms of ethical misconduct in front of the state bars, although not necessarily. It still might. Um, but Margolis said an interesting thing. He said, while I have declined to adopt OPR's findings of misconduct, I fear that John Yu's loyalty to his own ideology and convictions clouded his view of his obligation to his client and led him to author opinions that reflected his own extreme albeit sincerely held view of executive power while speaking for an institutional client. Now, John Yu is famous for thinking uh, and saying and writing that the president can do pretty much anything he wants during wartime. Yeah, some uh, grisly examples, including taking the child of uh, someone they're trying to interrogate and crushing his testicles to make the father talk. Yes, that was, uh, John Yu admitted that, that it depends on why the president wants to do that, mm -hmm. wants to order that, um, in a debate with Doug Cassell in, in Notre Dame. But one of the interesting things along those lines, uh, and I think equally, if not more horrifying, is that in the OPR report that was released on Friday, um, it depicted an exchange between an OPR investigator and John Yu regarding what he called the bad things opinion. Uh, in other words, 
towards what you thought the president could do during wartime. And it's very brief, and I'll read it. This is the investigator. What about ordering a village of resistance to be massacred? Um, Is that a power that the president could legally? And you says, yeah. And then the investigator asks, to order a village of civilians to be exterminated? And you says, sure. I mean, this is, this is like the My Lai massacre during Vietnam, but worse, because it's not clear that uh, there was an order that came from the president. I don't think there was uh, any evidence that the order came from the president to go in and massacre um, three to 500 uh, civilians in cold blood in My Lai. And so this is, this is really shocking. But I think the most significant – the book is not closed on this matter, and I think you're right about the corporate media saying, oh, the book is closed. Um, the, I think the most significant thing is that, the, that it, the, these reports reveal, at least the OPR report, that the memos were not just uh, the independent product of the Department of Justice, but they were shaped by top officials in the Bush administration. And John Conyers, uh, head of the House Judiciary Committee, and Patrick Leahy, head of the Senate Judiciary Committee, are going to hold hearings. I think the Leahy hearing is going to be on Friday. Um, regarding these reports. So the book is not closed. But the other thing that's important to note is that even if there's a conclusion in this particular Department of Justice report that there was not a violation of professional obligations, um, that doesn't mean that these people, and I'm including the torture lawyers, you and Bybee and the rest, as well as the high Bush officials, Cheney and, and Bush, etc., mm-hmm. uh, it doesn't mean that they should not be prosecuted for crimes. We're talking about war crimes. Torture is considered a war crime under the U.S. war crimes statute. And Cheney is still admitting that he committed war crimes. He's saying, yes, I ordered waterboarding. I'd do it again. John Yu says the same thing. Um, This is torture, and this is war crimes. So I think that the pressure needs to be applied um, on two different levels. First of all, people need to barrage the Pennsylvania Bar Association, State Bar Association, the District of Columbia State Bar Association, and the University of California Law School with complaints about you and Bybee. Bybee is uh, is a federal judge, so mm-hmm. the D.C. State Bar, the D.C. Federal Bar, and would be relevant there. And John Yu is licensed to practice law in Pennsylvania and also teaches at the University of California. And the Office of Professional Responsibility report, the one one of these two reports that was released Friday, is damaged evidence against them. That's one thing. And the other thing is that Eric Holder has said, even though um, Obama wants to look forward, not backward, and of course crimes happen in the past, you have to look backward if you're talking about enforcing the rule of law and prosecuting people for crimes. But Eric Holder has said that has launched a an investigation to determine whether to investigate the most egregious um, treatment of prisoners by CIA officials, and basically he has limited that to people who violated the reasoning in the torture memos, which of course implicitly sanctions um, what was what what happened in the torture memos. So Holder and Obama need to be pressured to enforce the law and investigate and prosecute these officials and lawyers for torture and war crimes, because if we don't, other countries will. Now, I, I, I certainly support those efforts, but regarding Holder, the cover story in Harper's Magazine this month, written by Scott Horton, uh, and we interviewed Scott at the end of January, that podcast is still, still available at iTunes and on our website, 
Uh, Horton describes the deaths of three prisoners at Guantanamo Bay on one night in June of 2006 uh, that are labeled homicides, but are most likely murders that occurred as they were torturing these these men, including one who is the son of a high-ranking police official in Saudi Arabia. And the Justice Department is closing the books on those cases. And despite the appointment of this uh, uh, special counsel, who is also supposed to be investigating the destruction of the CIA videotapes of torture, uh, that report doesn't appear to be forthcoming. It appears to be slow walking. Uh, I don't see any immediate prospect uh, that there is going to be full investigation or prosecution, even of these most egregious cases that occurred at so-called Camp No, the base uh, just off the uh, Camp Delta area of Guantanamo Bay. And to Leahy and Conyers, I have respect for both of those men, and I'm not making fun of them as my seniors, but it's like uh, they've had their dentures out. They're toothless. And Leahy will make comments. He's called for the resignation of Jay Bybee. That's fine. But will he use his power? as head of the Senate Judiciary Committee, uh, to really drill in on these issues. And likewise, John Conyers has written reams of documents about the wrongdoing of the Bush administration, but has honored Nancy Pelosi's desire not to pursue them. And so I don't take much hope that there will be follow-through, because I, I feel that Obama has shut these issues down. And frankly, from my uh, non-schooled, non-lawyer point of view, Professor, this is obstruction of justice. It is the willful effort to block investigation into clear criminality. And Dick Cheney has provided uh, uh, you know, verbal evidence on television in recent weeks. Right. No, I agree with you. Um... Patrick Leahy made a pretty strong statement after these reports were released on Friday. He said, in drafting and signing these unsound legal analyses, OLC, that means Office of Legal Counsel in the Justice Department, OLC attorneys sanctioned torture, contrary to our domestic anti-torture laws, our international treaty obligations, and the fundamental values of this country. Um, and, uh, and Conyers said uh, that they revealed that the memos were not the independent product of the Department of Justice, but were shaped by top officials of the Bush White House. It is nothing short of a travesty that prisoners in U.S. custody were abused and mistreated based on legal work as shoddy as this. So we'll see what happens with these hearings. John Conyers has held a series of hearings. In fact, I've testified at two of them. Um, And he would like to get other people on board in the House. The problem is that there has not been the the political will to do that. Now, you're right that he, I think because of Pelosi, he has not initiated impeachment, but that doesn't mean that um, he should not lead the charge for prosecutions and and set up. He talked at one point about setting up um, an independent congressional committee that would have subpoena power um, and possibly refer people for uh, criminal prosecution. So um, the book is not closed yet, and although it is the wheels are turning slowly and this appears to be a setback, the fact that they didn't just release um, the Margolis report that watered down the conclusions, they also released the OPR report, mm-hmm. which has some very, very damning um, evidence in it. But, so but I that's, think we that's... need to keep pushing. We can't just throw up our hands and say, oh, this is horrible, because if we don't prosecute other countries such as Spain, mm-hmm. under the very well-established doctrine of universal jurisdiction, where any, any country can punish the for, foreign nationals, 
um, for crimes un- unconnected to, to the punishing country um, because they're such atrocious crimes. They're crimes against all of humanity. The United States has used universal jurisdiction uh, about a year ago, sentencing Chucky e. Taylor from Liberia to 90-some years in prison for torture in Liberia unconnected to the U.S. Israel used universal jurisdiction to basically convict and execute Adolf Eichmann for his crimes during the Holocaust, even though they were not connected to Israel. And we're going to see other countries bringing our leaders and their legal, uh, their uh, hired guns to justice if we don't do it. Now, what about my point about obstruction of justice? Well, I, in obstruction of justice, you have to show an intent to instruct, obstruct, and by not pushing strong enough, uh, strongly enough to... Um, to bring people to justice. I don't know that that would rise to the level of obstruction. Um, There is prosecutorial discretion, and although the prosecutor should have independent discretion, um, it is clear that Obama is uh, is running the show here with Eric Holder. I mean, they're they're working on it together. It's not just Eric Holder, an independent prosecutor, who's who's going forward here. Well, according to Jane Mayer in The New Yorker recently, it's uh, uh, Rahm Emanuel who is sending smoke signals over to the Justice Department. He doesn't talk directly to Holder, but he uses intermediaries to... uh, what did he say? We're not going to re-litigate these issues. They've never been litigated. This is so insulting and, and unconstitutional. Right. And, and, of course, these are not legal, uh, legal opinions. These are political assessments that come from the top, from Obama, who still wants to make nice with the Republicans, thinking he's going to bring them on board, which he's not, uh, for his, his policies. Um, you know, he, he, he continues to cater to the right because all the pressure is coming from the right. And that's why the people on the left have to get together and apply pressure, because uh, Obama's a political animal. He will, uh, he will respond to pressure, and uh, unfortunately the pressure is only coming from one direction, and that's the conservatives. Professor, do either of the OPR uh, reports indicate that the torture began before the memos were issued? Um, it did. Be, it, it, it did begin, and there. Had the, in fact, the memos. Uh, some of the memos did indicate that memos. I believe from Bradbury, Stephen Bradbury. He also was the subject of this OPR report. Although the OPR report didn't accuse Bradbury of any ethical violations, but um, it, it is clear that there was some torture that went on before these memos sanctioned it. So that that's that's something we knew beforehand. At least in the Padilla case, and also John Walker Lind. Well, John Walker Lynn, certainly, and, uh, yeah, Padilla as well. Mm -hmm. Now, if I may, I'd like to read you a couple of passages from the Wall Street Journal editorial of February 22nd, which leads with the misleading headline, Vindicating John Yoo. And then the subhead is, Bush lawyers are found to have acted ethically, unlike their accusers. Uh, You have any reaction to that? Well, that doesn't surprise me, because... um, the Wall Street Journal regularly runs op-eds by John Yoo. I think he's one of their favorite columnists. And the Wall Street Journal is the apologist, is the corporate apologist for the right wing, and certainly was for the Bush administration, and uh, and continues to play that role. So it doesn't surprise me that they would twist the conclusions um, to say that it was a vindication. Uh, they say here, two OPR judgments, Office of Professional Responsibility, deserve particular scorn. 
The first is the claim that you and Bybee were so close to their client, that is the White House, that they knew what the president and CIA wanted to hear. But it's perfectly appropriate for a lawyer to know what his client wants, and by OPR's standard, 99% of professional lawyers could be considered guilty of misconduct. Now that you know, it's one thing to know what your client wants and to give your client legal advice that would support that conclu- you know, the conclusion that the, that the client wants. It's quite another thing to advise the president on how to commit war crimes and get away with it. And in in um, in these uh, these reports that were released, John Rizzo, who was the lawyer for the CIA. Um, candidly admitted that the agency was seeking maximum legal protection for its officers against public, um, against possible criminal prosecution. So it's very clear that the Bush White House, and I think Cheney leading the pack, <clears throat> Cheney and his lawyers, um, went to you and Bybee and the other, uh, you know, Bradbury and, and uh, Addington and Haynes and, mm-hmm. and all of the rest, and said, look, this is what we want to do. Um, give us some legal, and I use that in quotation marks, legal arguments to back us up. And John Yu, especially, I guess Bybee signed off on these memos, put his name on it, but John Yu actually drafted them went way, way overboard and and uh, ignored really um, critical uh, provisions of our laws. And uh, it wasn't just shoddy legal work. It wasn't just negligence. It wasn't just, uh, you know, bad lawyering. It was intentional uh, twisting of the law to allow the president to do anything he wants, basically, including ignore all of our laws, because we are at war. And, of course, that whole assumption is something that should be questioned. We yeah. have a so-called war on terror, uh, even though terrorism is a tactic. It's not an enemy. Um, this, this is not a war because, uh, you know, 15 men from Saudi Arabia and four others drove planes into the, the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. This is not a war. Um, is there terrorism going on in the world? Yes. But this is not a war. Um, Indeed, is- they've, they've kind of redefined it because there's been no declaration of war. There was an authorization for military force, and they basically uh, falsely uh, equate the use of military force as a, a definition of war. Right, absolutely, um, and uh, it's it's it, and and it's not clear. I mean, it's it's very clear. Um, there's nothing in that authorization for the use of military force that Congress uh, passed after 9/11 that says that the president can violate laws that prohibit torture. There just isn't. Indeed. The second point in this uh, journal editorial: the ethicists at OPR also claim the Bush attorneys were wrong to stick to a legal analysis of interrogation practices and should have also considered their moral and policy implications. But the duty of the Office of Legal Counsel is precisely to offer legal advice, not to render policy judgments. Now, this spins on its head because John Yu's argument that's now parroted by right-wing uh, op-eds and, and commentary is that uh, the people who want to see him investigated and possibly sanctioned uh, simply are uh, trying to punish him for policy differences. And, and you cannot have it both ways. No, and you can't really separate the law from the policy. I mean, law does not exist in a vacuum. Laws don't fall out of the sky. Um, Laws grow out of judgments that are made by our legislators um, based upon policies. So you can't really separate it out. I think it's a false distinction. Uh, One of the other things that is is noteworthy here is that we are paying Miguel Estrada, 
who was a rejected nominee for a federal court lifetime appointment uh, during the Bush era, and a guy with a really sorry track record. We are paying him to defend John Yoo in in these issues. Uh, isn't that pretty repugnant? Yes, it is. <laughs> I noticed that. I think that's bizarre that that's who he has chosen to to represent him. Uh, and yes, he was uh, he was not confirmed as a judge for very good reasons. And now um, John Yu is taking swipes at Don Johnson, who is a distinguished professor from Indiana University, who's been nominated to uh, serve there in the office of legal counsel. And her confirmation's been held up in the Senate over uh, unrelated issues and the kind of blockage or obstructionism that we've seen from Republicans. But you is saying that, uh, you know, uh, Johnson is reflecting only partisan disagreement with the policies of the previous administration. Now, her positions are grounded, and uh, they they were expressed in uh, opinions that she wrote before she was nominated to this position. And once again, this kind of sniping in an effort to re-spin this as simple policy differences between liberals and conservatives or Democrats and Republicans is, is pretty misleading. Well, there's a, there's a reason that uh, her nomination has been held up, and that is that if she became head of the Office of Legal Counsel, she could go after you and Bybee and, and, and uh, Bush and, and Cheney and all of these people, and they're terrified of that. Yeah. They will do anything to keep her from getting confirmed. So they, you know, all of this, uh, this rhetoric is really aimed at keeping her out of there because they know what her position is, and her position is that you vigorously enforce the law. Now, one person I'm trying to track down to interview to get more commentary on this professor is Jessalyn Radak. I don't know if you know who she was, but she worked at the Justice Department, and she was uh, sanctioned before the Maryland Bar uh, because she gave advice that John Walker Lind was entitled to counsel. And uh, this is, again, uh, a, a real contradictory situation where uh, we're seeing a whitewash of you and Bybee, but somebody who uh, was a Republican appointee who resisted this whole undercurrent of breaking the law in the name of, of the war and Bush policies, uh, she's one of the only people, I, I think the only person, who has suffered as a result. Yes, and so it shows that it's totally political, that uh, they will go after people who don't agree with uh, with the policies that they set and their politics, um, but they will shield the people who do. And uh, not that Obama agrees with, well, I, I actually shouldn't say that, because Obama, disappointingly, has really pursued a lot of the same policies as the Bush administration in the so-called war on terror. In fact, he's taken some of them to even a, a, a more egregious level, such as the use of the um, unmanned drones in Pakistan, killing civilians. And the um, use of the state secret. And he said he would do that. I mean, it's not, you know, people are disappointed but he's doing exactly what he said he'd do, although now it turns out that uh, I think Odierno says that we may not get out of Iraq, which I was, I was waiting for that to come out. Yep. Um, Obama said, we're going to get out of Iraq and go heavily into Afghanistan, the real enemy, the real war, and it looks like that he's not getting out of Iraq, and he's escalating the war in Afghanistan, and he's shielding the torture lawyers, and he's doing things like um, keeping litigation uh, that would challenge... Uh, extraordinary rendition out of court, you know, putting forth the state secrets privilege. Yes, and um, also the the, dom- the domestic wiretapping continues, right. and they have doubled down to prevent 
any uh, litigation of those issues. And uh, I think it's a clear violation of the Fourth Amendment. But we can't litigate that because we don't have standing. We can't prove that we've been wiretapped. Right. So it's a cute little it's circular, yeah, circular arguments that prevent uh, real enforcement of our constitutional rights. Right. Absolutely. Professor, before you go, I wanted to get your uh, comment on the new book, Rules of, Enga- of Disengagement, The Politics and Honor of Military Dissent. What prompted you to uh, work on this book and to uh, put out the, uh, the case of conscientious objectors and those who want to uh, decline in order to report for duty in a war zone? I am a child of the 60s and kind of cut my political teeth on the anti, in the anti-Vietnam War movement, and I see a lot of parallels between what was happening then and what's happening now and how um, soldiers and GIs after repeated deployments are coming back with post-traumatic stress disorder, wondering why they're there, um, feeling like these wars are illegal, many people figuring out once they're in that they're conscientious objectors, that they object to all war. And so um, Kathy Gilbert, who is the co-chair of the National Lawyers Guild's Military Law Task Force and an expert on military administrative law nationally, and I wrote this analysis that compares the current wars of today with the war in Vietnam on many different levels and talks about specifically conscientious objectors, um, rules for dissent, challenging racism and sexual harassment and assault in the military, um, post-traumatic stress disorder, and uh, has some very interesting stories by families and, uh, and, and GIs and service members themselves about what they've gone through. It's both a theoretical and a practical guide. Yeah, you've got some uh, tips and resources here for people who want to uh, fully pursue their rights. Right. Well, I'm really glad you did this, and I think that uh, as our uh, wars continue uh, almost open-ended, and I'm sad to agree with you uh, that uh, we're going to be in Iraq longer than, than anybody hopes. In a recent podcast, I spoke with Professor Juan Cole from the University of Michigan, and he was pretty optimistic that uh, since we're now down to about 98,000 troops in Iraq, that we would be down to 50,000 by August of this year, and that we would honor the Bush-Sofa agreement with Baghdad uh, to get all of our troops out by the end of 2011. And frankly, I don't see it. We've got permanent bases there. We're going to find an excuse to keep, I think, at least 20, maybe 40,000 troops there uh, for a long, long time. Well, I think that uh, General Odierno, it came out in the paper to yesterday or today, that yeah, he's today. saying we may not get out uh, after all. So um, I don't know if Juan Cole, if you had the interview with him since Odierno came out with, with, uh, with no, that it, statement. No, it was, it was before. But it doesn't surprise me either. I, I can't imagine these huge bases, which are like small cities, being totally dismantled. Um, and I've never thought that we would really get out of Iraq. So it's, it's a very distressing situation, but we need to keep resisting and applying pressure and making it clear that we just don't like what's going on in our name. Professor, I want to thank you for joining us, and thanks, too, for your work at the National uh, uh, Lawyers Guild and pursuing uh, justice for John Yoo. And I know he is a disgrace to those of you in the legal profession, and I hope that at some point we will see appropriate discipline for uh, these uh, legal opinions that he wrote that led to the torture policies. Thank you so much, Peter B. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Peter B. Collins Show. Your comments are always welcome. Email peter at peterbcollins.com. Happy trails. Happy trails.
Happy trails.